0: Now Satan asked Eve this question, has God been telling you what to do again? And Eve answered, well, he said that we're not to eat from the fruit of that tree in the middle of the garden or we'll die. And then Satan sneered, oh, you don't have to listen to God. Just be your own boss. Do your own thing. God doesn't want you to eat the fruit from that tree, because he knows that you will then have a knowledge of the difference between good and evil, just like he does. So just go ahead and eat. And Eve, she stared at that fruit and it became suddenly irresistible. And she ate some of it and then she gave some to her husband who was there with her and he ate it as well. And then Everything was just disaster as a result of that, because they were immediately alienated from God, they were expelled from the garden, and then they were estranged from their environment, and eventually they died. And ever since that day, every descendant of Adam and Eve has inherited that sinful, rebellious nature instinctively even though we're born perfect instinctively almost from birth we resist authority we don't want any authority figure telling us what to do Uh, i could see it in my children before they were even a year old my oldest daughter Brittany, we would uh, try to do something for me do those were her... It was not, I love dad. Her first words were, me do. So she, we were trying to get her to feed her some spaghetti. Me do. So she plasters herself with the spaghetti. So we stripped her down to her diaper. And yes, with our first child, it was diapers, not pampers. We couldn't afford pampers. And I changed a lot of those things. And I was pretty good. Didn't stick the pin into my fingers. But that's an aside. But so... We stripped her down to her diaper and then gave her her spaghetti. And she was just covered with it. Try to tie her shoes. Me do. And it would be the same thing again. But that drive for independence surfaces with temper tantrums and pouting spells and defiance. And kids are then elated to go off to school. But then they don't like teachers telling them what to do. One young guy... He got tired of the teachers lording it over him, so he dropped out of school early, and his parents told him, well, you've got to do something career-wise here, so he enrolled in the military. But then the sergeants were barking orders at him, so he didn't like that, and he looked forward to the day when he could actually be discharged. And then he met this beautiful young woman, and they got married six months later, and then, a short time after that, he discovered that this uh, search for freedom was an elusive dream. Oh boy, nobody got in this service either. But pre- People dream of the day when they'll be totally independent with no bosses and no customers telling them what to do. Uh, they'll... But there will always be spouses, there will always be government officials, doctors, law enforcement officers, and even their own children, telling them what to do, dictating their lives. So from the cradle to the grave, we resist authority. And really, if deep down, we resist the authority of God as well. Jeremiah said, More than anything else, a person's mind is evil and cannot be healed. Who can understand it? But when we become a Christian, we make a deliberate choice to submit to the authority of God. And then we say, Lord, I'm in need of a Savior, and I submit myself to you as my God in all things. So it's no longer my will, but it's your will be done. And that's why three weeks ago, just before baptizing Daniel Furman, and then just before he baptized his wife Sheila, I asked each of them five questions. I said, do you believe that Jesus... Is the Son of God? Do you believe that He died for your sins and that He rose again? Do you accept Him as your Savior and the Lord of your life? Do you believe that you need to repent of your sins? And do you agree to follow Him the rest of your life? The Savior part we like because it's good to hear that we're going to have someone take care of our sins. It's good to hear about a home in eternity one day. But the Lord part got a little trouble with that one, because what we're saying is, from this day on, Jesus, you have complete authority over me. And As my Lord, he dictates how I behave. I might not feel like saying no to lust or giving money to the poor or forgiving someone who offended me, but I'll allow him to tell me what to do. And it doesn't matter what the experts are saying. He is the Lord, and he's told us what he expects of us. So being a Christian, it's swallowing our pride, and that's why Jesus said, If any of you wants to come after me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And Luke 20 actually records Jesus' enemies challenging his authority. And these religious leaders come at him with three questions, and they're basically trying to undermine all of his credibility. And their goal is to reestablish their own influence and continue their agendas without Jesus interfering. And our Lord's response to each of these questions are incredible. And it shows his innate authority, and that still merits our ultimate allegiance today. So here's the first question. The chief priests questioned Jesus about his authority in chapter 20, verse 1. One day, Jesus was in the temple, teaching the people and telling them the good news. The leading priests, teachers of the law, and elders came up to talk with him, saying, "'Tell us what authority you have to do these things. Who gave you this authority?' And it's easy to understand why they're upset, because just two days prior to this, Jesus had triumphantly come into Jerusalem, riding on the back of a donkey, and the people were proclaiming him to be the Messiah.'" And then he comes into the temple courts the next day and he stops all their corrupt practices and now he's teaching people in the temple courts, in their turf. They were the teachers of the law. He wasn't. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't royalty. He had no authorization from Rome. He hadn't been to the best schools. He hadn't been trained to teach. So they asked him, Where did you get this authority from? And they were deliberately putting him on the hot seat. If he admitted, well, I have no authority, he'd be in trouble with the Jews because he was in the temple and he was acting like a prophet. And if he said, I get my authority from God, he'd be in trouble with the Romans because they were always on the lookout for would-be messiahs that might cause some type of insurrection against the Roman government. So they would have him arrested. But Jesus, his answer was brilliant. In verse 3, he said, "'I will ask you a question. Tell me, when John baptized people, was that authority from God or just from other people?' So Jesus put them on the spot because he knew that John the Baptist was someone that they respected. They knew he was a prophet from God, and John clearly had identified Jesus as the Messiah. So the religious leaders had a dilemma. How are they going to answer him? So in verse 5, they argued about this saying, well, if we answer, John's baptism was from God, Jesus will say, then why did you not believe him? But if we say it was from other people, all the people will stone us to death because they believed John was the prophet. So they answered that they didn't know where it came from. So they decided to play dumb and not answer Jesus' question at all. So they were actually deceitful in asking the question first of all, and and then they were dishonest in the way that they avoided answering it. But then in verse 8, look what Jesus said to them then I won't tell you what authority I have to do these things. Lewis Foster said, In this way, Jesus effectively silenced them. He forced them to withdraw in embarrassment. He had answered their question, and they knew it. John's authority was from God, and Jesus' authority was likewise from God. And later on, the Apostle Paul said, I know that after I'm gone, others will come in. They'll be like fierce wolves attacking you. Some of your own people will tell lies, trying to win over the Lord's followers. And you're going to hear religious leaders and people with impressive credentials questioning Jesus' existence. They'll be scoffing at his miracles and even reversing his teaching. There was one man that I looked up to as a mentor when I was in college. And I did that until I rightfully placed my father-in-law, Alan Smith, and Merle Zimmerman, who was the pastor of my church when I was born, until I rightfully put them in that place. But this guy, he had a doctorate. He was a professor. I took a couple of courses from him. I, I heard him preach. And I just dreamed, you know, that someday I'd be able to explain the Scriptures as simply as he could. And then we eventually worked together on a church plant the last two years that I was in college. And one day, it was toward the end of that last year, he and I were working together on a church building project, and he asked me how I felt heading into a life of ministry. And I told him that I was scared to death, I said, with the importance of all of this. And he said, that's good, because... When we come out of college, we thought we had the world by the tail, and then we've discovered that we don't. So this guy went on to begin questioning Jesus' existence, scoffing at his miracles, and a lot of people pay attention to the writings of this guy, and in those writings, he was reversing the teachings of Jesus. So he could explain scriptures simply, but he ended up not following them. When the authority of Jesus is challenged by any religious leader, including James and myself, you let the Jesus of the Bible be your Lord. Now, if we submit to Jesus as Lord, then that means we must believe the Jesus as he's revealed in God's word. So in Galatians 1, God, by his grace through Christ, called you to become his people. So I am amazed that you are turning away so quickly and believing something different than the good news. Really, there there is no other good news, but some people are confusing you. They want to change the good news of Christ. We preach to you the good news, so if we ourselves or even an angel from heaven should preach you something different, we should be judged guilty. So his authority has been proven by his resurrection and his lordship over the church for over 2,000 years now. Then the Pharisees questioned Jesus about political duty. So they watched Jesus and sent some spies who acted as if they were sincere. They wanted to trap Jesus in saying something wrong so they could hand him over to the authority and power of the governor. So the spies asked Jesus, "'Teacher,' We know that what you say and teach is true. You, you pay no attention to who people are, and you always teach the truth about God's way. Tell us, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, a question about taxes puts any leader on the spot, and this was a real sore spot with the Jewish people because they were chafing under the authority of the Romans. And they were begrudgingly paying every dime of their taxes. And these spies asked the question regarding Roman authority, hoping that they could provoke Jesus into offending the Jews by saying, yeah, go ahead and pay the tax. Or in offending the Romans by saying, don't pay taxes. So his answer is beautiful. And he knew that they were trying to trick him. So he said, show me a coin. And and then he said, Who, whose image is on it? And they said, well, Caesar's image and Caesar's name are on it. So then he said, okay, then give to Caesar's, excuse me, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. So they weren't able to trap Jesus in anything that he said in the presence of the people. And they became amazed at his answer and they became silent. That you give to the government what rightfully belongs to the government. God established human government so that we would have an orderly society. And it's so that even though the emperor, he may be imperfect, as long as he doesn't require you to disobey God's law, you cooperate. So as Christians... We want to be the best citizens in the country. We'll obey the laws. We'll respect those in leadership. We'll pray for those in authority. We won't actually bring frivolous lawsuits against others. We will work hard and pay taxes that we honestly owe. We'll exercise our right to vote, even though we may not be excited about the candidates. But give the emperor what belongs to him. But then he said, You give God everything that rightfully belongs to Him. And what rightfully belongs to God? Well, it's everything. So now we're in Colossians 1 17. He was there before anything was made, and all things continue because of Him. He is the head of the body, which is the church. Everything comes from him. He is the one who was raised from the dead. So in all things, Jesus has first place. That's who our Savior is. That's why he has the ultimate authority in this world. The coin was stamped with the image of the emperor Caesar, so it belonged to him. But we are stamped with the image of God, and everything belongs to him. And now, if we understand that Jesus is Lord, then that's going to impact every area of our life. He's given us so much. How are we going to respond? At our annual meeting yesterday, both Roland of Orohai and Kunle Fakayesi, talked about the fact that it was election day back in Nigeria yesterday. And there was a sense of unease about that because of what might happen. I was reading about a farmer who was actually detained for questioning about an election scandal. And he was asked, did you sell your, uh, your vote? And the attorney got the answer, no, sir, not me. The farmer said, I voted for that fellow because I liked him come on, said the attorney, I have evidence that he paid you $50 to get your vote. And then the farmer said, well, it's plain common sense. If a fellow gives you $50, then you're kind of going to like him. And in our country, we may vote for the one who promises to give the most, especially in the area of tax relief. But as Christians, We should reflect a passion for the morals and standards of God, the sanctity of life, the sacredness of marriage. Those things should actually have precedence over taxes. Let's say that your daughter comes home from college with whom she thinks is Mr. Right. He's athletic. He's good-looking. He's uh, smart. He's ambitious. And you say, well, is there a downside here? And she says, well... We've been arguing a few times, and he has hit me. And then what do you say? You say, don't marry that guy. Quit dating that guy. And she might say, well, you're just looking at one issue here, Dad. But then you say, well, no. There are a lot of qualities you look for in a mate, but there's one that disqualifies him immediately. Some issues matter enough to just break it off. Christianity is under attack in our country, and the authority of God in the areas of life and morality are suffering a meltdown. Jesus said, Give to the emperor what is belonging to him. You be the best citizen you can be, but give to God what belongs to God, which is oversight of everything. The last question they asked was about eternity. So we're now in verse 27. Some Sadducees who believed people would not rise from the dead came to Jesus, and they asked, Teacher, Moses wrote that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, then that man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Once there were seven brothers. The first brother married and died but had no children. Then the second brother married the widow and he died. And the third brother married the widow and he died. The same thing happened with all seven brothers. They died and had no children. Finally, the woman died also. Since all seven brothers had married her, whose wife will she be when people rise from the dead? Now, this was a shallow, silly question that was asked with a condescending spirit. The Sadducees who asked the question, they were the religious uh, liberal group of that day. They believed that only the first five books of the Old Testament were inspired by God. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in angels and demons. And they contended that Moses never wrote about life after death. So they bring this inane hypothetical Question to Jesus. And it's the type that skeptics will come to us today. And they'll ask things like, well, where did Cain and Abel get a wife? And they'll ask things like that. And then they, these guys ask that question. Whose wife will this woman be when they get to heaven? And Jesus answered, it's a stroke of genius. And Jesus said to them, on earth, people marry and are given to someone to marry. But those who will be worthy to be raised from the dead and live again will not marry, nor will they be given to someone to marry. In that life, they are like angels and cannot die. They are children of God because they have been raised from the dead. So Jesus makes it clear that there will be life after death. But heaven isn't going to be exactly like what we have going on here on earth. Relationships are going to be different. So there won't be any marriages in heaven. Now some of you maybe like that idea. You will have an unlisted number in heaven. Or if you're so in love with your mate and you want to see him or her every day, you'll be able to do that as well. But marriage as we know it won't exist in heaven Religi- relationships will be on a higher level. We'll be able to maintain our identities. We'll know each other, but we'll be spiritual beings. So Jesus then went on to challenge the disbelief of the Sadducees, and he proved to them that Moses did believe in life after death. But They just missed it. So now we're in 37. Even Moses clearly showed that the dead are raised to life. When he wrote about the burning bush, he said that the Lord is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is the God of the living, not the dead, because all people are alive in him. So Jesus is saying, okay, you say you believe in the books of Moses. Well, let's look at what Moses said. And Moses said that When God appeared to him in the burning bush, he didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So if these people weren't continuing to exist in eternity, he would have used the past tense. So I think you missed something here, guys. And I love the reaction of the Pharisees who are the opposing party. They believe in the resurrection and they're always at odds with the Sadducees. And some of the teachers of the law said, teacher, your answer was good. So basically they're saying, we never thought of that. Good answer, teacher. Way to go. And then, uh uh-oh, we're not supposed to give you praise. We're working against you here. And then... Verse 40, no one was brave enough to ask him another question. So Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority on eternal life. If you want to go spend a month... In the North Pole, you don't uh, talk to one of your friends who spent maybe a couple of days in none of it, or you don't read some book about Santa Claus or something like that. You go to an expert, someone who has spent a lot of time in that location, and you listen to what they have to say. So when it comes to eternal matters. Why give any credit whatsoever to Miss or some psychic who claims to be able to go into the life beyond and then come back? Because Jesus alone has been there and returned. He's the expert that you can put your trust in. He said, After I have done this, I will come back and you take you to be with me, and then we will be together. So when it comes to your own life, don't try to be your own boss. Trust the Lord. Say with King David, I may walk through some valleys that are dark as death, but I won't be afraid because you are with me. Now, I don't know a lot about heaven, and it's because there hasn't been a lot written about heaven. But I know the Lord, and He knows me, and He said in His Word, What God has planned for people who love Him is more than eyes have seen or ears have heard. It has never even entered their minds. So it's more than we can even comprehend, but it's enough to be excited about, and it's enough to want to be a part of that. Because we are going to die someday. For some, it may be unexpectedly, but if you place your trust in Jesus Christ, you don't have to fear that moment because he will meet you and he will guide you on into eternity. Matthew Henry was a famous minister in Wales in the early 1700s. He also wrote a famous set of Bible commentaries, and he shared what his father wrote as a baptismal statement for each of his children. Here's what they pledged when they were baptized I take God the Father to be my chief end and my highest good. I take God the Son to be my prince and savior. I take God the Holy Spirit as my sanctifier guide, teacher, and comforter. I take the word of God to be my rule in all my actions and the people of God to be my people under all conditions. I do hereby dedicate and devote to the Lord all that I have, all that I am, all that I do, and I do this deliberately and freely and forever. We simply say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he died for my sins and rose again. I accept him as the Savior and Lord of my life. I I repent of the sin in my life, and I pledge to follow him the rest of my life. You know what that means? That means that Jesus has supremacy over the way you think, over the way that you behave, and means that you don't just admire him, but you worship him. He's Lord over religious leaders, over government decisions, and all eternal matters. He's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and we accept that freely, deliberately, and forever.